this is Dr. David Howard in his teaching on the books of Joshua through Ruth. This is session number 14, Joshua 9, Gibeonite Treaty. Okay, in this section, we're going to be looking uh, at uh, Joshua chapter 9, and uh, this immediate chapter would be called something that I would say maybe call it uh, the, the Gibeonite Treaty, the treaty that the Israelites made with the Gibeonites. Uh, but this is the beginning of a section of three chapters that are kind of linked together. Um, in, uh, it, it expands the horizons of the book's actions. The first, in, the first set of battles are with just very closely connected geographically. Uh, Jericho and Ai, chapter 6 to 8, um, chapter 9 through 11. In each of these chapters, we have coalitions of kings coming against uh, Israel. Uh, in chapter 9, uh, verses 1 and 2, we uh, see that. Chapter 10, uh, there's a coalition of five kings from the south banding against Israel. Chapter 11, there's a coalition of many northern kings. So the, 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 the unifying thread in these three chapters is these coalitions of enemy kings coming against Israel, and they're having to deal with that, and then the battles. And in, these battles become more formulaic and more uh, kind of dealt with in a summary way, especially at the end of chapter 10. And in chapter 11, we don't have the details that we see in Jericho or certainly in Ai. Um, but anyway, let's look at the, the passage here in uh, chapter 9. Uh, we've mentioned already in earlier part of our discussions that uh, Israel's reputation had preceded it. Rahab mentions that in chapter 2, where we have heard what your God has done to, to the Egyptians and to Sihon and Og. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, we saw that the coalition of kings there had heard what God had done and they were very afraid. So in those first two cases, we see uh, the Canaanites being afraid of the Israelites. Here now, there's a change. And in chapter 9, verse 1, it says that as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, in the lowland along the coast, the great sea toward Lebanon, etc., uh, in the verse 2, as soon as they heard it, they gather together as one to fight Joshua and Israel. So now there's a change. Uh, whereas earlier, when the Canaanites hear about Israel's God and the victories that God gives, uh, they were afraid. Here, they're not. They launch into an offensive, uh, an offense against Israel. And I think the reason is because now uh, Israel has shown vulnerability. They have, they have lost the battle. They had gotten to Ai and been defeated. So that maybe gave the, uh, these kings um, some extra courage. Uh, so they come to fight against the, uh, the Israelites. This, uh, this motif of the king's hearing is found uh, back in chapter, nine, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, chapter 9, ver uh, uh, chapter 9 verse 3 as well. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard, and then they did something different, they responded in a different way. But notice in chapter 10, verse 1, it says the same thing. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua captured Ai, then, it, then he leads the coalition against the Israelites. And then uh, chapter 11, verse 1, when Jabin, Yabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent, uh, brought a coalition together. So that idea 
of Israel's reputation being known is one that we see throughout. It's a thread, running thread throughout uh, the book. So now let's look at, see what the Gibeonites themselves actually uh, do in response to what they heard. And it's different from uh, what uh, the other kings have done in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and what they do later kings do in chapters 10 and 11. Because uh, verses, two and th uh, verses 3 and 4 kind of give us, set the stage. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, went on the, they on their part acted with cunning, and they went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn, and, and so it goes. Uh, and what's behind this is that somehow they had some knowledge of Israelite practice or Israelite, what God had told Israel. <clears throat> because the backdrop to this um, is in two passages in the Pentateuch. One is in Exodus 34, verses 11 and 18, which we won't look at. But another is in Deuteronomy 20, uh, especially verses 15 to 18. So I will have us turn to that. We've, we've looked at this passage once or twice before in other contexts, but uh, we'll remind ourselves of this. Uh, in Deuteronomy 20, um, in the middle of God's instructions for what they're to do in Canaan, so look at verse 10, for, for example, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace, if they respond positively, then everything's good. But if not, you shall go to war against them, put the male to the sword, etc. But then it goes on to say in verse 16, in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, in other words, the cities in Canaan proper, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, Hittites, Amorites, etc., that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable practices and so on. So the point being, the cities within Canaan itself are to be devoted to destruction by the Israelites. So somehow the Gibeonites know about this provision. We don't know how. But uh, so they, their approach to Israel is from a different angle. They, they are interested in their own survival. They're perhaps not sure if they can defeat Israel. It, it makes it pretty clear uh, in chapter 9, uh, verse Three, when they'd heard what God, what God had done, to, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, great defeats of the Canaanites, they think, well, we need to try a different way. So they dress up and bring provisions and so on that make it sound like they, they've arrived here uh, to where Jer Joshua is in the camp at Gilgal, verse 6. Let me just parenthetical word about Gilgal. Uh, the first place we've encountered Gilgal is right across the Jordan River, not too far from Jericho, where they did the circumcision, and the word Gilgal is related to the word Galal, to roll away, and the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. That's a significant uh, site, but there are more than one Gilgals in the Old Testament. And this one here appears to be in the middle hill country, not down by the Jordan River. And uh, it's probably the same place that Samuel goes by in, second, in 1 Samuel 7. And there may be even one or two other Gilgals. Um, scholars are a little bit differentiated about that. But there's not just one. There's at least two. Uh, and this is the one in the Central Hill country. And what they say in verse eight, uh, 6 says, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Uh, the point being, we've come from a place not under the ban, we're 
we're okay. We're not part of what you should be destroying. Now, to their credit, the Israelites, there were seven, uh, said, uh, maybe, maybe you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? And they said, nope, we are your servants. And then they showed them um, all of their provisions. Look at this, verse 12. Uh, here's our bread. It's still warm when we took it from our houses. Now it's old and crumbly. And the wine skeins were new, but now they're old and so on. So uh, this is a, a, a very cunning and very smart uh, deception on the part of the Gibeonites. Uh, to try a different way to get along with the Israelites, and the Israelites fell for it. Uh, verse 14 says the men took some of the provisions, so they're fellowshipping together, they're going to make this covenant, they're going to break bread together. But the fatal flaw here is at the end of verse 14, because it says they did not ask counsel from the Lord. So this is a problem, and God is angry with his people because of this, but uh, we can't fault Joshua and the elders for being deceived. If the deception was smart enough and wise enough, it would have fooled them. What we can fault them for, though, is not asking God's guidance here. And God would have then undoubtedly said, no, these are, these are locals and you need to, to uh, destroy, destroy them as well. So that, that's the fault here. It's one of the few places in the book of Joshua where Joshua, well, first of all, Joshua does not even appear at this point. It says they did not ask counsel. Uh, so Joshua doesn't seem to be exercising his proper leadership function here. Um, it's one of the places where he doesn't, he, he, he seems to be failing uh, in his leadership. And so as a result of this agreement to make this covenant, this agreement uh, with the Gibeonites, Joshua Verse 15, made peace with them, made a covenant with them to let them live. The congregation of the leader, leaders of the congregation swore to them. So that's a big problem. And, uh, but the idea of making a covenant and swearing an oath uh, is very fundamental in not only the Bible, but in ancient Near Eastern contexts. Uh, this is something, a Solomon thing that you make enter an agreement with. And... Uh, it's not something that's lightly broken. So when they discovered, uh, verse 16, uh, at, at the end of three days after they made a covenant with them, they learned that they were their neighbors and they lived among them. And uh, so there, but verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them because their leaders had sworn by the Lord. And the rest of the chapter shows the aftermath of that and shows how uh, Joshua summoned the Gibeonites, says, why have you done this? Uh, Why did you deceive us? Verse 22. And uh, therefore, because of this, you're cursed. Uh, we're not going to kill you, but you're going to be our servants, cutters of wood, drawers of water. Verse 23. And uh, the Gibeonites say, okay, fine. Uh, we'll, we'll be happy to do that. They've at least survived. So verse 27. Uh, Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water at the congregation, and the altar of the Lord to this day. So whenever the book was written, that lasted for uh, at least decades, if not some centuries. So the Gibeonites were another group of Canaanites who survived. I guess they would, we can say there's three groups of Canaanites that survived in the book of Joshua. They escaped the, the command to completely destroy them. One is Rahab on the basis of her faith. Second is the Gibeonites 
from a different angle on the basis of their deception, but they were spared. The third is all those peoples that uh, whatever tribe were not able to drive out from their territory that we read about in the later chapters. Uh, the story of Rahab is a great one with a happy ending. She is part of the line of Jesus. She's part of the hall of faith in the New Testament. Uh, there is a happy ending to the story of the Gibeonites uh, as well. And uh, it happens about a thousand years later. And we read about that in the book of Nehemiah. So if you'd open to Nehemiah, Chapter 3, we will see the Gibeonites mentioned there. Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, now the context here is this is about a thousand years later. It's um, after the exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, and then they've come back. Uh, Nehemiah has come back with a commission from the governor of Persia the king of Persia, that he is going to be the governor of the area of Judea around Jerusalem. He is a political and administrative leader as well as a spiritual leader. And one of the things that Nehemiah helps them to do is to, build, to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And you may remember that everybody pitches in and does their part. And chapter 3 is uh, the chapter that gives all the people who were involved in that project and uh, who did their part across from where they lived. And so it's just a kind of a almost a meaningless chapter for us 21st century people. We don't know the people, the names, and all that. It's just this long list. It kind of reminds me of the monuments in a, the town square of a small town in America where the list of the World War I veterans or the World War II veterans are there. But th that's important because people, descendants, and others can honor the names and know that these were there, these did their part. Here's the same thing. It, the, the names of the list of the individuals are preserved here in the book of Nehemiah. And in the middle of that whole list, uh, look at verse 7. Um, next to these previous ones, repaired uh, Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Meronothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, seat of the governor of the province, etc. So we see here, just as a matter of fact, there's no big deal made of it, but as a matter of fact, among this list of all the Jews who are rebuilding the walls, all the people of God who are doing this, we have Gibeonites. They have survived. They are now not the woodcutters and the drawers of water. They are full participants in the life of, of, uh, of Israel. So at some point, they had assimilated into the life of Israel, and I would say embraced the God of Israel in a way such that they are now, a thousand years later, full participants in, in the life. So they entered the, the family of Israel by a deceptive fashion, but in the end, there is a happy ending to their story. Uh, just also to mention uh, another little piece in chapter 7 of that same book, uh, uh, Nehemiah, chapter 7. This is a list of people that came back from exile. So these are people that have been taken away, captive from Jerusalem into Babylon, had stayed there close to 70 years, 50 to 70 years, and now are coming back. And again, in these listings, uh, looking in, you know, just list the sons of so-and-so, how many of their descendants came back. And look at verse, uh, starting in verse 21, the sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98 survivors. Verse 22, the sons of Hashum, 328. The sons of Bezal, uh, Bezai, 324. Verse 24, the sons of Harif, 112. And verse 25, the sons of Gibeon, 95. 
So again, a thousand years later, there had been Gibeonites who had been seen as Jews, taken captive by the Babylonians, and 95 of them returned now uh, under uh, the returning exiles. So there is a happy ending to that story. Even though the Gibeonites entered relationship with Israel by trickery, uh, God ultimately was gracious, and they were also foreigners who became part of Israel, uh, doing their part. This is Dr. David Howard in his teaching on the books of Joshua through Ruth. This is session number 14, Joshua 9, Gibeonite Treaty. Thank you.